If you all have a Bible, we're in Matthew 10, verse 3, the second part of verse 3. We've been looking at some of the disciples of our Lord, and tonight we're going to continue that. We're going to look at Thomas. You remember Doubting Thomas? We're going to talk about him tonight. And Matthew, the tax collector. We're going to look at those two men's lives. Uh, the scripture says, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Well, probably since the first century, uh, Thomas has always been known as the doubter. That's the main thing. When you think of Thomas, you think of that. Uh, he was a person that had his doubts about things. Are you in that group? Do you have uh, doubts about things? I do. I watch ads on TV, and uh, they say that this will absolutely clean any surface that you put it on. I doubt that. I doubt that. I've tried a lot of those, and they haven't worked. Uh, you know, you, you look at, uh, at Thomas, and you think, uh, now, he was a great Christian guy. Why did he doubt? I want to get into that with you tonight careful look at the gospel, uh, the different accounts really relay to us that this disciple was a man of great faith and dedication. We shouldn't always associate his name with being a doubter in a negative context because he was a strong believer. He was a follower of the Lord. Uh, with several of the apostles, all that uh, is known about Thomas is in the Gospel of John. In the other places, it's just a list of names. But in John, uh, there are three different places where Thomas is talked about, and I just want to mention all three of those tonight. Uh, Jesus was ministering on the other side of the uh, Jordan River, and while he was gone, the report came that Lazarus had died. Uh, on hearing the news, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Uh, let us go uh, to be with him. Well, even after witnessing so many of the great miracles, some of the disciples, in fact, the vast majority of the disciples, really didn't have it all nailed down. They'd seen Jesus do all of these unbelievable things, but some of them, for whatever reason, we think, well, good night. By this time, they should know that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior, that he could do anything, that he was omnipotent, he had all power and all knowledge. Uh, they should have known that. Well, they didn't. And so Jesus uh, says this, you know, we're going to go, and I want you to go with me. Uh, Jesus had already uh, raised some from the dead, but the twelve were still lacking in faith. And Jesus determined to present his last great miracle to kind of carry them over the edge of being firm believers. Uh, he had already decided to go back to Judea, uh, despite the fact that all of the disciples said, No, let's don't go there. If we go there, they'll kill you. We shouldn't go there. It's crazy to go there. The Romans, the Jewish authorities, they're all against you. Don't go there. Well, uh, Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. 
And Jesus said, we're going. That's where we're going. Well, it was so dangerous. It was almost like saying, uh, you know, I'm ready to die. Uh, That's probably what's going to happen. Fully realizing the danger to all of them, Thomas says this. Now, see if this sounds like a a doubter. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, also said to the fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Now, that doesn't sound like a doubter, does it? That sounds like a strong, very, very strong disciple uh, of our Savior. Thomas uh, was... uh, With the other disciples, they believed that because of the hostility of the environment there, that this was virtual suicide to go back into that area. But Thomas uh, took the initiative to encourage the twelve to go with Jesus and to suffer the same fate that he did. He felt like they ought to be there with him. They ought to stand beside him. He was obviously pessimistic about the outcome of this trip. Uh, you know, he thought they were going to die. But the pessimism makes his act of faith even more cre- uh, courageous. I mean, it's, it, you really have to have a lot of courage to say, you know, it, we think that we're going to die there, but if he's going, let's go with him. That takes a lot of courage to do that. And that's exactly what he did. Thomas was willing to pay the ultimate price for the sake of his Lord. Such unreserved willingness to die for Christ is hardly the mark of a doubter. Thomas was willing to die because he totally, totally believed in Christ as his Savior and Lord. Well, if Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem where there was certain death, so was Thomas because he felt like the alternative of living without him would be unbearable. Now, you know, um, that, that's such a strong statement. Are there people that uh, for you it just wouldn't be worth living if you weren't with them? I mean, that's really a strong thing to say. And that's what Jesus, that's what uh, Thomas is saying here about Jesus. He said, it would just be unlivable without him at the center and core of my life. There's another instance in the upper room uh, following the Last Supper. Jesus urged the disciples not to be troubled in heart. And he assured them that he was going to prepare a heavenly place for them. And that they would come again. And he would come again and receive them unto himself in order that they might be forever with him. Forever. He wasn't going to leave them. And then he said, and you know the way uh, where I'm going. And Thomas was uh, puzzled at this. He said, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. He didn't say that in the wrong attitude. You know, he he said it in ignorance, not in disbelief. He was a great man of faith. 
And then Jesus uh, says this, which is so powerful and, and really one of the strongest professions of, uh, of faith in the whole Bible. Uh, understanding Thomas's heart as well as his words, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, uh, Jesus is basically saying, if you know me, uh, then you know the way. Don't worry about the way. If you know me, I'll show you the way. I'll take you. Don't worry about that. If you are in me, you are in the way. Your only concern is to be with me, and I will take you wherever I'm going. What a great statement of faith. Now, this was said, of course, to all of the disciples. And it really helped them to understand what was going to happen. Now, we think, well, good night. That should have answered any questions that any of them had. But uh, as events unfold, we realize that they still didn't all get it, even after he said this. Well, the third text in which John tells us about Thomas is by far uh, the best known. Uh, when Jesus was crucified, he was buried. All of Thomas's worst fears came to pass. You know, he was afraid that this would happen, and it did happen. For Thomas, it was worse than death. Uh, he had been perfectly willing to accept death for Jesus and for himself, but this was, was worse because he was forsaken. He was willing to die with Jesus, but he didn't want to be left alone without Jesus. He felt in some ways like he had been rejected. When the other disciples told Thomas that they had seen the Lord, Thomas, of course, had seen the Lord die. And he just wasn't buying it. He was so discouraged. He was so down. Uh, he was in such remorse. Uh, this probably felt like they were pouring salt into his wounds, into his wounds when, when they said, uh, he's alive. He's alive. And he said, uh-uh, no. No, I saw him die. No, he's not alive. When Thomas heard that Jesus was raised from the dead and alive, he declared, unless I see his hands and I see the mark of the nails, unless I can take my finger and put it in those marks, unless I can take my hand and put it in to his side, I am not going to believe that he has risen from the dead. Well, I want to talk to you about this tonight because this is very important. You know, in life, sometimes a number of bad things go together. There's an old uh, fable that uh, bad things go in threes. That's not true, but I, I hear that all the time. Uh, sometimes bad things go in tens and sometimes in twenties. And people get really, really discouraged. And they have bad things happen one right after another. Well, after you have three or four really horrible things happen, you begin to be defeated. You begin to be so discouraged that you kind of give in. And you say, well, everything is terrible. And everything is going to be terrible. 
And it's never going to be any better than this. I have spent my life, and I know Ross and Ed and Jim and uh, Dan, I know everybody has done this. We spend our lives talking with people that have that kind of an attitude because a number of bad things have happened to them in a short period of time. Well, if a person is so depressed, especially if they are a pessimistic person, it's hard to convince them that anything will ever be right again. My sister-in-law, my brother died, my sister-in-law is, let me say it this way, she's an interesting person. Um, She had uh, a cat and a dog, and she loved the cat and the dog. Well, when the cat died, she went to bed. She went in and got in bed, and she didn't get out of bed. And my brother didn't know quite what to do, and so they'd been married for years and years and years, and uh, he called her parents to talk to her. And when they got on the phone, she said, I want you all to come down here and be with me. So they got on a plane. They flew down to Florida. They had to stay with her for days and days and days because the cat had died. I really shouldn't be telling this because I don't like cats. (laughs) I love dogs, but I don't like cats. But, uh, you know, I think that was excessive. I mean, I think that was really excessive. Well, uh, you know, there are some people that if just one thing goes wrong, they just basically just fall out. They become mopey, and you can't get them out of it. There's nothing that you can do to bring them out of that. Well, Thomas is like that because he is convinced his plight is permanent of improvement seems like It's unrealistic to the point where it is almost irritating. When the other disciples come and say, he's alive. He's alive for crying out loud. He just doesn't believe it. He has been so discouraged, so put down, uh, in so much duress that he just can't function. He cannot function. Well, To the person confirmed in hopelessness, even an idea of hope can be an offense. And this is exactly what happened to Thomas. It was an offense when they said to him, the Lord is alive. None of the disciples uh, really believed that Jesus was alive until they saw him. They had seen him. And basically, that's what uh, Thomas was saying. And Jesus came and said, reach your finger here and see my hands. He said to Thomas, reach your hand here, put it into my side. And now be not unbelieving, but believing. 
And here's one of the greatest confessions of faith that's ever been made. Now, you've got to understand the background here. He has been denying this, denying this, denying this. He's been down. He's been dejected. He's been in the utmost uh, of uh, total blackout almost in his life. Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Comes out of it. Comes out of it. It took the Lord being there for him to come out of it. But he did. He came out of it. He took a stand of faith. Well, transition uh, says that Thomas, after that, went and preached all, all over a whole lot of places. He went as far away as India and the Mar Toma Church, which still exists to this day in southwest India and bears his name, traces its origin to him. He is said to have died with someone putting a spear through his body as he was a martyr for the Lord Jesus. What a story of a man of strong faith. Well, let's look at Matthew. Because he wrote the first gospel, Matthew is one of the best-known apostles. We feel like we know him uh, better than some of the others. Uh, the New Testament reveals not many things about his life and ministry. He wrote a book that we all have read, that we all have studied. I think this is my third or fourth time to preach through the book of Matthew and it's a great book. It's really a powerful uh, witness to the Lord. <clears throat> and I'm sure that you know this, but let me kind of hit the high points. Tax collectors were the most despised people in the whole uh, Judean uh, world. Uh, they were hated. Uh, the people considered them traitors. They were the most despised of all the people in Jewish society. They were often more despised than the occupying rulers and soldiers, the Romans. And you know it would be hard to be more despised than them, but tax collectors were because the people felt like the tax collectors had betrayed them. They were Jews, but they had betrayed the Jews, and they had cheated the Jews out of their material wealth. And Rome stood behind the tax collectors. There was nothing they could do about it. Tax collectors were not permitted to testify in Jewish courts. That talks about how low they were. They were notorious liars, and they accepted bribes as just a regular part of life. They had no integrity whatsoever. They were all crooks, every one of them. They were crooks. Well, they were cut off from the rest of Jewish life. They were forbidden to worship in the temple and even in the synagogue. Now, how would you feel if you were a tax collector? Matthew saw himself as the vilest of sinners, saved only by the incomparable mercy of his Lord. Even from the little information that we have about him, Matthew was a man of great faith. When he got up from his tax table and he began to follow Jesus, 
He burned all the bridges behind him, every one of them. I was trying to think of a comparable number, and of course, you know, we don't know what that number would be, but it would be like you, if you had a job making $500,000 a year or maybe a million dollars a year, and somebody walked along and said, uh, hey, why don't you come and follow me? And you got up and followed him and walked out on a job that paid that much money. How many people in America today would do that? Not very many. Not very many. Well, that's exactly what Matthew did. He was the richest guy in the whole area because he was the tax collector. He could cheat everybody, and the Romans protected him, and the Roman enforced what he said. Well, uh, tax collecting was a lucrative occupation, to say the very least. Casting his lot with Jesus did not increase Matthew's popularity with anybody. The Romans didn't like Jesus. The Jewish authorities didn't like Jesus. So this didn't help him, but it greatly increased the danger that he had to live in. There's little doubt that Matthew faced something of the true cost of discipleship before any of the other disciples because he immediately was under the scrutiny of everyone. Matthew was not only faithful, but he was humble. It may be that his humility was born out of the overwhelming sense of his sinfulness. He saw God's grace as so superabundant that he felt unworthy to say a single word. He was the silent disciple. You never see anywhere in the Gospels him saying anything. He didn't say anything that we know about. Uh, until the Holy Spirit came and led him to pick up a pen and to begin to write the opening book of the New Testament. We really didn't know hardly anything about him. The fact that Matthew is also referred to as Levi uh, gives us a sense of some of his Jewish heritage. We have no idea what his biblical training was, but there's a very interesting thing about the book of Matthew. He quotes more Old Testament uh, passages than the other three gospel writers put together. He leans lesser on the Q document uh, than uh, the others. Uh, he is a very, uh, very unique man and a man of great faith. Matthew had a loving heart for the lost. As soon as he was saved, you know what he did? He lined up a great big party at his house. He invited all the tax collectors from the whole area. He said, I want you all all to come to my house. I'm throwing a big party. He invited all the prostitutes. He invited all the crooks that he had palled around with. He invited all the scum, the people that the regular person hated. He invited every one of those people to his house for a party. And guess who else he invited? He invited Jesus. And he went around the room as they were all there. We don't know the number that was there, but it was a, a big crowd. And he told every one of those people, you see that guy over there? I want you to meet him. 
He saved my soul. I'm a follower of his. And you need to meet him. You need to get to know him. He's the Savior. That's exactly what Matthew did. He had a heart for the lost. God took that outcast sinner and transformed him into a man of great faith, a man of great humility, and a man of great compassion. He turned him from a man who extorted to a man who gave, who was very giving. He changed that man from one who destroyed lives to one who brought the way of eternal life to as many as he possibly could. He changed completely and became a strong advocate for Christ and the Christian way. And through the writing of his book, there have been millions of people that have come to faith in our Lord and Savior. Thomas and Matthew, two that followed him. Tonight I'd like to ask, is there anyone here that would like to follow him? Is there anyone here that has never publicly professed Christ as your Lord and your Savior? I want to give you the opportunity to do that tonight. Is there anyone here tonight that has done that? You've confessed your faith and trust in Christ, but you need a church home. I want you to know that on Sunday night, the doors of the church are wide open, and we would be thrilled to death if you would come and join with us, be a part of our family and serve the Lord with us and through the auspices of this church, that we might be able to touch many, many people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. I'm going to stand right here. If there's a decision for Christ that you'd like to make, just slip out, slip forward, and take a stand for him. Let's stand together.